You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Um, with that said, it's already been mentioned as well that uh, this morning we're jumping into a new sermon series, or really what will be essentially a series of sermon series. Um, we're breaking this 16-chapter book down into about 30 sermons and, and six or seven different sort of smaller series uh, and, and this morning is sort of the, the introduction to that. So this morning, uh, we're, we're hoping to sort of frame why we are entering into this letter in particular. Of all of the 66 books that are in uh, or that comprise the canon, the Bible, um, that we've been given by the Lord, why would we choose 1 Corinthians? Well, what we'll come to find out is that we have quite a lot in common um, both with Corinth, the city itself, not even just the church, but the city itself. And we have some things in common with the Corinthian church. And so this book for us, I believe, will be not only helpful, um, but also appropriately difficult in that it will step on our collective toes. And so uh, if you're interested in that journey with us, then I'm excited to invite you into it, and I'm excited to be a part of it with you. If you'll allow me to to pray, uh, then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together. Uh, Grateful, God, that you have brought uh, people from different places, um, from different cultures, from different realities, from different upbringings from different worldviews, Lord, into this room together, Lord, ultimately to proclaim that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that your son Jesus, who lived, died, was buried, and rose again, um, is both the way and the truth, and not only those two things, but also the life, God, that in him we have all that we need for life and godliness. And so, Father, I pray that you would take us out of our camps, God, and draw us into uh, this people that you've called us to be. So, Lord, be gracious to us. Teach us this morning. Change us. Conform us to your image and likeness. Uh, Lord, only your spirit can do that. And so we ask that he would be present, working among us as we open your word. And we trust that your promise to do so will not return void. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me read uh, just the first three verses. This is what it says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place in the world call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I always love Paul's introductions because they're so encouraging, um, they're so uplifting, and they are always reminding us that we are united in our love for Christ, not only with those that we are looking in the eyes this morning, but with those who around the world in different time zones and in different places are even this day worshiping this Lord together. He is both their Lord and ours. And because of that, he brings a greeting of grace and of peace to the church in Corinth. 
And I'm not going to lie, this is about as good as it gets for the rest, of the, the rest of the 16 chapters. You see, everything that, that we'll talk about over the next 30 plus sermons is addressing a people in a place, namely Corinth. And so if you've ever been to a play or the opera or Broadway or the ballet, uh, then you know that although it's rarely the focal point, the set, the set plays a massive impact on your experience of the show. It informs, it enhances, right, what you're experiencing. It lends context to what's taking place before you in this performance and in much the same way. You could watch a ballet or a Broadway or an opera or a play and get the gist of it without the set. But the set enhances the experience, gives us helpful context. In the same way, the set of Corinth is the backdrop against which the life of this new church is unfolding for us. It is the proverbial soil in which the seed of this church in Corinth is struggling to come alive. And so what is Corinth like? I mentioned in the introduction that, that it should be familiar to us or it should sound similar. It shouldn't be a foreign when we describe it, right? And so when we talk about Corinth and when Paul addresses the church of God that is in Corinth, he's speaking to a church that occupies a trade city, strategically located in the Mediterranean, linking both the Aegean Sea and the road to Rome. And because it's a trade city, what often comes along with trade is wealth, right? So you not only have a trade city, but you have a, a wealthy city. And anywhere that there is trade and there is wealth, there are going to be people from different parts of the world who are going to come try to get a proverbial piece of that pie, right? And so you have a diverse city. One that is ethnically diverse. There's people from all over the world that occupy Corinth. It is a Roman city, but it used to be Greek. And so there's a long history of the Greek people there. But there's also now Roman tradition laid over that. There's also Jews and people from the vast Roman network. And often what comes along with an ethnic diversity, there's also a worldview diversity, meaning that you not only have a clash of ethnicities, but you have a clash in the ways that people think through and process their world, the world that they inhabit. Again, you have a formerly Greek city that was destroyed, but now has been rebuilt by Rome, with all of those varying influences still in play. And what we know is that even though all of these things that I'm describing may be for us, give us a sense of excitement, right? Give us a sense of, of curiosity. It peaks for us all of our interests. This, this idea that we could experience many different cultures and all in the same place, all all bringing their respective thought processes and business and everything into this one location that's exciting, but there's a dark underbelly to all of that. Because when people come together, it's not only the, the, the good parts of them that are compounded, it's also their 
sinful parts, their hidden parts, their darker desires that come together and are compounded. And so you have this incredible city that is at the same time a very, very broken city. We'll come to find out that it struggles with all kinds or has a, has a strong reputation for sexual immorality uh, and corruption. Then that has seeped into everywhere, every part of life in Corinth. And also, unfortunately, we'll come to find out in the church. And here's the thing, the reason I want to paint this picture of Corinth for us before we jump into how Paul is going to address this, this, this new church in Corinth is because I think that we, we tend to think that our generation is more complicated to live in. That our brilliance is so far beyond that of our predecessors that none of what they dealt with is relevant for us. That none of their cultural issues are relevant for us. That none of the philosophies or worldviews that they were having to navigate and deal with are anything like what we're currently dealing with. But there's this wonderful book in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, and in it the author says that there's nothing new under the sun. And I think that upon closer inspection, when we look at this city of Corinth, and when we look in particular at the worldviews that are surrounding it and they're having influence in this young church, we'll come to find out that it's not quite so different from the world that we inhabit, from the worldviews that we're having to navigate, from the morality questions that are being raised, even in our day, because there's nothing new under the sun, brothers and sisters. Here we have a city that's sorting through poly, the polytheism and the, and the civil religion of Rome, right? Caesar is God. We have a city that's sorting through the philosophy and the polytheism of Greece. The monotheism of Judaism. And on and on and on, all of these worldviews with all of their vast social, political, and moral implications. Does that sound like anywhere you know? Corinth isn't all that different from Houston. We're a trade city that has become exceedingly wealthy, filled with diverse ethnicities and worldviews who are all contributing to this beautiful but deeply broken mess. But in Corinth and in Houston, it's not just the city that's broken. All right, what does Paul go on to say in verse 10? He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now this is only the beginning. 
right? This is seven quick verses in the very first chapter, but already, immediately, we come to find out that not only is Corinth as a city deeply broken, but the church that inhabits Corinth is also deeply broken. We're only scratching the surface here, but the church in Corinth is divided. And we only get one small issue that they're divided over this morning in these seven verses. We'll come to find out that they're divided over a ton of difficult issues that are facing their young church. But in this instance, in these few verses, one of those issues is the issue of celebrity leadership in the church. Strong personalities in those early days have created unnecessary and unhealthy allegiances within the church, right? That's what Paul says. He says, some of you say that you're of Paul. Some of you say that you are of Cephas or Peter, right? The other apostles. Some of you say that you're of Apollos. And then, of course, there's always the holier-than-thou crowd that says, well, I'm of Jesus, Brothers and sisters, the Jesus joke has been around for a long time. The Jesus juke, I'm sorry. And what does Paul, Paul say to that? He says, listen, none of that matters. Right? It doesn't matter who baptized you. It matters who saved you. It doesn't matter who baptized us, brothers and sisters. It matters who saved us. And Paul isn't in this for his name, for his cult of celebrity. He's in it for Jesus. And not in the ham-fisted, in the, in the cliche sense, but in the truest and most honorable sense of the, the word, of the phrase. He's not looking to create or be a part of any kind of competition between cults of personality. And again, none of this should sound unfamiliar to us, right? Especially if you've been uh, in the church world for any significant length of time. All right, let's just put it this way. Some of you say, I'm of Matt Chandler. Some of you say, I'm of Tim Keller. Presbyterians and Baptists, always butting heads, right? Some of you say, I'm of John Piper. Some of you say, I'm of Stephen Furt, whatever. Like, right, any, any number of these evangelical celebrities. It was a problem then, it's a problem now, this cult of personality. Being more enamored with the messenger than the message, or more importantly, the subject of that message, Jesus. But I don't want to spend really any more time than that talking about that particular issue. One of the things I'm, I'm exceedingly grateful for, brothers and sisters, and this is not by any means uh, to prop ourselves up against other churches. We have our own issues that we're going to deal with through this walkthrough in 1 Corinthians. But one of the things I'm most grateful for about Sojourn, brothers and sisters, is that it could never be, it could never be misconstrued for a cult of personality. There's no single figure at Sojourn. Not, not Sojourn Heights, not Sojourn Montrose, not Sojourn Spring Branch, not Sojourn Galleria, not the soon-to-be Sojourn Easton. There's, there's nobody in this sort of collection of leaders that people are looking to and going, man, that guy's really got it together. And I know that some of you are like, well, maybe like, that should be concerning a little bit. <laughs> right? 
But really and truly, like by, by God's grace, the, the, the work that has happened at Sojourn, which is marvelous in its own right, is, is truly in the absence of a cult of personality. And for that, I'm grateful. And I pray, I pray that it will always be that way. That no matter how gifted the leaders that are raised up at Sojourn are, that no matter how, how much sort of the... the <laughs> the people in the room change, that, that we would never be more enamored with the messenger than the message, or more importantly, the subject of the message. But so with that said, like, let, me just, let me just zoom out from, from what is sort of immediately pressing on us in verses 10 through 17 and just say this. It's clear, it's evident here, and it's going to become all the more evident in the next 16 chapters that this church is deeply divided. It's deeply divided on a number of issues. It's divided on whose teaching is authoritative, clearly. It's divided on moral issues. It's divided on social issues. It's divided on political issues, right? Every, every issue that you can imagine is an issue for the church in Corinth. And listen, none of us in the room this morning are naive. This has been a tumultuous season in our culture at large. And because of that, it's been a tumultuous season within our churches. Lines are being drawn. Political lines, moral lines, social lines. And I don't... I don't think it should be a surprise to any of us that within that, some of us have likely been hurt. That some of us have experienced the, the wreckage that has come from that brokenness, from that division within the church. And listen, for some of us, that might not even be a recent thing, right? Like if you've been in the church for any significant amount of time, there's likely that little spot in your heart, and it might be small, it might be a large gaping hole, but there's a scar there where at one point something took place within the, what was supposed to be the safe confines of the church that ruined you. We've all at some point or another been wounded by the brokenness of the church. And so we read Acts chapter 2, right? Verses 42 through 47. We read that and we feel like we've been cheated, right? Well, look at these people. They're sharing everything. Everything they have is in common. They love each other. Nobody's going without anything. It's just like this, you know, people are praying together and studying the word together and people are being saved every day by the thousands. Like, that's where I want to be. And so there's this common refrain, I think, among those who are dissatisfied with the church, right? Which is, we need to go back. We need to go back to what the early church was. We need to sort of strip ourselves of all the vestiges of our, of our current expression of the church. And we need to go back. But brothers and sisters, the evidence on display for us here in Corinth is that the early church was broken too. And here's the reality. 
our response to the brokenness of the church is often one of two responses. The first one is we, maybe we just leave the church, right? And so now we're either no longer Christians or we're Christians, but we don't belong to a church, which is a paradox. Or, and this is probably more likely to be the folks who comprise this room, myself included, we become cynical and hypercritical. Right? So we can, we can tell people all of the reasons that the church is broken, but we don't contribute anything to its healing or its restoration. All the answers and none of the elbow grease. Right? right? That's been me. I'll confess it right now. That's the traditional response that we experience, I think. And so we're stepping into this letter written to a broken church in a broken city, and you would think that Paul's response might be similar to ours, right? Whatever, like, failed experiment, right? Move on to the next city. Try, try again. You would think that Paul would be in despair, right? That he would be disgusted, disappointed with his brothers and sisters. And we'll come to find out in the, in the coming chapters that there's plenty of reasons to be disappointed, disgusted, disillusioned. And so you'd think that Paul would just do one of those things, either leave it to its own destruction or become hypercritical, cynical about its future. Man, I just don't, you know, that church that we planted in Corinth, I, I just I don't really have much hope for it. On the contrary. Right, read verses 4 through 9. This is what Paul says. I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul doesn't throw his hands up in the air and leave. Nor does he become hypercritical or overly cynical about the future of the church in Corinth. What does he do? He prays a prayer over them. And it's not like the snarky prayer circle prayer, which is like, man, I, you know, just, Lord, I just lift up, I just lift up Brother Barry to you. Because I know he struggles with X, Y, Z. 
It's not. It's a prayer of gratitude for them. Right? Not, not like I'm thankful that like you guys seem to be surviving, right? It's I give thanks to my God. Not sometimes, always for you. Now listen again, like some of us haven't read 1 Corinthians, so I'm 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 saying these words knowing what's coming, right? And I'm going, I, I don't understand how, how that's the prayer. I give thanks to my God always for you. Paul is grateful for this mess of a church, grateful for the evidences of God's grace among them, namely that Christ Jesus is being formed in them, that the confession of Christ is being confirmed by them. He's grateful. But he's not only grateful, he also prays a prayer of hope for them, right? Paul believes that Christ has begun something in them. And when Christ begins something, he finishes it. But it's not just a prayer of gratitude for them or a prayer of hope over them. It's a prayer of confidence for what the future holds for them. Because in Jesus, dead things come alive. In Jesus, what is broken is made beautiful. So broken cities and broken churches through the grace of Jesus by His life, death, and resurrection are also resurrected into glory, into beauty, into wonder. And so, brothers and sisters, as long as the church has Jesus, it's on the journey to becoming unbroken. That's Paul's perspective in this moment. And what a grounding perspective it is, right? We're going to find out just how broken the church in Corinth is. They have a long way to go before their behavior matches their status before God. But Paul has no doubt that it one day will. No doubt in his mind. This church that is so broken will be sustained to the end by Jesus. To the end. And not only will it be sustained, but it will be sustained, big old word, guiltless. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful by whom they and subsequently you and I were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so brothers and sisters, we're going to talk about a lot of very difficult things throughout our study of this letter. We are. They're unavoidable. But we're going to wade into those waters believing and trusting that God is going to make what is broken in us beautiful by His grace. As your pastors, we're going into this letter not with disdain for you, but with gratitude for you. Hopefully expectant for what Christ will do in us and through us, confident that God has given us all that we need and that we're lacking nothing. 
We're going to wade into our brokenness together knowing that we don't have to sustain ourselves because Jesus has already said that he will. And so this is my prayer for this series as we walk through this over what is essentially the remainder of this year. My prayer is that in the coming days, months, and years, we'll believe that God makes broken things beautiful and that He doesn't just do this corporately, but that He also is doing this on an individual level. Listen, some of us look at the church and we see an impossible picture. It's just too broken. It's too far beyond the pale. It's, it's, it's irredeemable. And my hope is that when we read 1 Corinthians, we'll go, oh, maybe we're not so bad off. Or maybe we'll read it and say, oh, gosh. But that at the end of the day, we'll believe, like Paul believes, that God is faithful to the end. To sustain us guiltless. But I think a lot of us, what we, what we feel on a corporate level, which is that this, this whole thing, like the, the political division, the racial division, the, all, the, right, the, all the social and moral differences that we feel like we, we need to sort through and work through and can't seem to quite come to consensus on, that that's just going to, it's going to tear us apart. Like, what we feel on that corporate level, we also feel on an individual level here's what i mean by that right some of us may think that when jesus comes into our life he takes our broken things and he kind of covers them like with a tarp or with old sheets and so nobody knows what's under there right so nobody nobody necessarily sees our brokenness outwardly but us and and god and because nobody sees what's under there, we don't have to talk about it, right? Everything, everything just kind of looks relatively inconspicuous. But that thing is still broken and it's still there and we know it. But brothers and sisters, that's not how Jesus works. And it's not how he works on an individual level. And it's certainly not how he works on a macro level either. When Jesus comes into our life, both individually and corporately, He slowly but surely, Paul makes clear, slowly but surely takes the broken things in our lives and He makes them beautiful. Paul is so confident in this for the church in Corinth, but he's also confident in it on a micro level. Brothers and sisters, there is no darkness in us, there is no darkness in you that Christ will not graciously, kindly, and get this, willingly cast out of you by His light. And so if you're broken this morning, I'm going to invite you to come on this journey with us into God's Word. It's not going to be easy. We're dealing with brokenness. But I want to invite you 
to find beauty and wholeness in the crucified, buried, and resurrected Jesus Christ who is faithful and who, if you submit yourself to Him, will willingly, graciously, kindly sustain you to the end guiltless before Him. That is our only hope this morning. And that is true of us corporately and it is true of each and every person in the room. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your wondrous grace, God. You have every right to utterly destroy every single person in this room. We are traitors, God. We are offenders, Lord, of Your holiness. And yet, God, rather than destroy us, rather than cast us out, rather than read to us our offenses, God, You have placed our offenses upon Jesus. You have cast Him out in our stead. And He is now risen in victory over that which is broken in us. And Lord, no matter how bleak the picture gets, those things are true. And so I pray that we would pray with Paul a prayer of confident hope in Your grace that has been so clearly and so gloriously displayed for us in the cross of Your Son, Jesus. And I pray that You'd save us. I pray that You'd save us from ourselves. I pray that You'd save us from the prevailing thinking of the day, God. That we wouldn't be enamored with wisdom, but Lord, that we would be utterly subdued by the power of Your cross. And that You would make us a people that look more and more like You day by day, slowly but surely, according to Your will. Lord, we trust You, we praise You, and we thank You for all things. In the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.